Um, good morning. Uh, actually, afternoon. Sorry, I haven't had lunch yet. Um, I'm David Steele. I'm one of the senior staff workers. It's great to uh, meet you. Um, actually, can we have some lights on the screen as well? Um, if you've never seen me before, it's because I'm here part-time and I lurk uh, down in the corner of the university where the med students and the uh, dental students occasionally touch base uh, as they run back and forward to the dental hospital. So if you're a dental student and you're here, you're doing very well. Is there a dental student here? No, you see they're on the bus off to a lecture um, or to drill some teeth or something. Um, okay, well, last week I felt quite a deal of sympathy for Mike as uh, he told us about his discomfort with poetry because um, it's a really mysterious thing, poetry. And uh, today we're once going to, again going to be delving into lyrics that uh, are a step up from the prose that uh, we're more used to reading. Um, and the analytical process is kind of scary. Uh, have you ever pulled something apart to see how it works and then not been able to put it back together? It's not such a nice feeling. Um, way back when I was a child, um, pre-electronic toys really, uh, there was this thing called a bag of laughs, which was this kind of, I don't know if they still exist, it was kind of a bag and it had a thing in it and you pressed it and it laughed. So it was pretty fantastic. <laughs> and I took it apart and I couldn't put it back together, which was very disappointing. Um, so the question that haunts me today is, will I be able to put this all back together after we've uh, had a look at it? Anyway, Psalm 60 is the type of psalm known as a communal lament. And if you uh, can't see Psalm 60, make friends with your neighbour or get your Bible out, um, whichever you would prefer, because EU is a community and we'd like to get to know you. So if, even if you have a Bible and your neighbour looks like someone you'd like to get to know, you can always ask if you can borrow theirs. Um, so Psalm 60 is a type of psalm known as a communal lament and that's a, a lament is a passionate expression of grief um, and in the last week or two I've been wallowing in some really sad music that could um, give us a contemporary example of a lament I thought I might play something for you uh, one that nearly always gets me going because um, I don't know who's, who weeps at movies? yes um, I'm with you. Unfortunately, not all my family does, so I get a lot of scorn from my younger children. Anyway, and my wife. Um, it's called When Somebody Loved Me. It's from Toy Story 2. Look, I'm choking up already. And um, the cowgirl, Jessie, sings uh, as she remembers how her first owner loved her and everything was happiness, but then she was forgotten and then, this is the part that really gets you, she's rediscovered and everything's happy again, but it's just a false hope and she's abandoned in the donation depot on the roadside. So anyway, I thought about playing it for you um, so that we could weep together, those of us who are weepers, um, but decided not to because really there's no point because it's not that, Psalm 60 is not that sort of song. <laughs> okay? It's... Well, that's kind of what you think of when you're thinking of a lament. You're thinking of country and western, you know, something bad's happened. Anyway, um, Psalm 60 is really much punchier than the crying or moaning response to grief. Um, it's much more in your face, or rather in God's face. Um, you might be familiar with the Kubler-Ross model of grief, commonly known as the five stages of grief. And um, that 
uh, model identifies anger as the second stage of grief, and I think we can find a fair bit of that in Psalm 60. It's uh, pretty close to a letter of complaint, really. Uh, Dear God, what have you done to us? Kind of feel, okay? Now, there's a lot more going on because David's kingdom is at stake, but it's uh, not so weepy, really. Um, You can find individual laments, and there's many of those in the Psalms. Uh, In fact, if you're going to look at the Psalms on what type of psalm they are, that's the largest category, individual laments. Um, And they do tend to be more emotional, more about the emotions of distress. Uh, But in contrast, communal laments for Israel are really concerned with stuff that's happening at the national level. And, uh, you know, with the concerns of the king and often on behalf of God's people, and those sort of things are to the fore. So the emotions are there, but uh, they aren't really so weepy. Anyway, there are four parts uh, to Psalm 60. Um, there's the superscription, which Richard kindly read for us, uh, and that's actually part of the psalm, and in the Hebrew uh, versification, it's uh, it con- considered as verses 1 and 2, um, but we'll stick to the regular numbering. Um, the lyrics which form the rest of the psalm fall into three fairly equal parts and each of those has four verses. And we're going to look at each of these parts in turn. So the superscription contains um, various directions for performance of the psalm, uh, an attribution to David, and uh, gives us a historical context, um, which is pretty helpful. It also has this little note that says for teaching. There's no particular special teaching features that... Uh, distinguish this psalm from any other lament but I was just encouraged that this psalm was thought to be worth teaching so I thought I'd tell you about it. Um, The historical context that's given to us in the superscription is not mentioned directly anywhere else in scripture um, really um, you know why they would be lamenting but um, there are passages that are very close in terms of geography and uh, the nations that are mentioned, and that's in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 3 to 13, and 1 Chronicles 18. Uh, but there are a few differences. Um, as I said, the geography is shared, particularly the mention of uh, Aram Zorba, or Zoba, which means the Arameans, or uh, the Syrians of central Syria, and um, Edom, which is to the south. The number of casualties differs in those accounts, and this, but you know, this could be easily be explained by a different time frame for each passage. So, you know, the that aspect of history was um, they're looking at it from different uh, in different time frames. Um, it's also odd that yeah, the superscription and the two Samuel and one Chronicles uh, only mention a victory; they never talk about a defeat, and. There must have been a defeat. I mean, why would you write a lament if there haven't been a defeat? Okay. Now, there's two ways we can approach, approach these discrepancies. Some people have concluded that what we see in the superscription is the result of an editor adding to the text in a somewhat sloppy fashion, really. Um, uh, and they suggest that the most plausible explanation is to regard the Bible as a loose group of texts uh, with bad continuity, really. Um, and But there is a different way that we can approach this. I think uh, some humility would help us along and um, we could accept that we probably know less about the world 3,000 years ago uh, than the people who were there at the time. And so, and that, um, well, sometimes Bible commentaries 
don't appear to get that. Anyway, um, life is usually more complicated anyway uh, than any history can convey and so there will always be things that we don't know about uh, in any history, however accurate. And in histories, a lot of unimportant stuff that would otherwise have made it um, quite long and boring is edited out. Um, so to discover that David had some unexpected defeats along the way to an eventual victory, in the end, I don't think is particularly remarkable. I think that's just how things work. Um, the comment about the victory that Job won is giving us the good news uh, in the superscription before we get into the difficulties of the defeat. It's kind of like flipping to the end of a book to see what happens before you read it. You know, like we kind of get the good news before we get the bad news so that you don't kind of get all... Anxious. It's like uh, recently a cricket commentator um, observed the ball coming straight to him and then you heard the sound of broken glass. And the thing, the, uh, when people reported this, apart from the amusement of the commentator getting hit by the ball, they also really wanted to assure us that he hadn't actually been injured uh, significantly. So it's kind of like that. I think the superscription is trying to uh, soften the blow in a way. Now, I get to um, draw a map. I get to do some geography. Um, and uh, because um, you need to know where Edom and Aram, Zorba and stuff like that are, you also need to learn how to draw on the bio, uh, you know, draw yourself maps because really online most of the maps are really, really bad and I think I can do better. So we've got the Mediterranean. Okay. Okay, it's very diagrammatic. <laughs> and um, we have the Dead Sea. Oh, sorry, it's got this little lump in it. So there you go. And then we've got the Jordan, which is about the same length. Oh, this is too big anyway. <laughs> about the same length. And then there's the Sea of Galilee. And that's roughly a third of the length. Anyway, it sits out of proportion. Over here... Somewhere you've got the Euphrates and the other one. Because <laughs> that's the EU Euphrates. <laughs> ah, that's right, it's the Tigris. Um, and um, this is where Jerusalem is, here. And um, we've got Aram, oh, Damascus is about here. And Aram Zorba is about there. Damascus is the capital of the uh, Aramean <coughs> Empire and it's kind of where Syria is, okay, now. Sort of all this area to the north of Israel. Um, so I think that's enough for now. Is there anything else in the superscription? Okay. Um, oh, Edom. Edom's down here. So you can see that um, uh, David and his armies were fighting in the north, in the Aramean kingdoms, and then it appears that uh, we, we probably guess that the Edomites in the south took advantage of their absence and attacked Israel, inflicting a significant defeat. And then David appears to have sent one of his generals, Joab, back down to deal with the Edomites where he won a victory against them in the Valley of Salt. Um, now, we don't know where that is. Uh, it's unidentified. Um, it may possibly have been around the Dead Sea, though, because that's very salty, uh, and that is near where Eden is. So, you know, somewhere down there, we think. 
Um, the other question I want to raise about this psalm is whether this is our story. After all, this concerns events of 3,000 years ago on the other side of the world. What has this got to do with us? Um, we're not living in Israel under the rule of David or his descendants. Even if we just wanted to ho- grab hold of verse 12, with God we will gain the victory. You know, that would be a good thing um, for sport at Ancon, wouldn't it? Um, who wouldn't want to grab it? Uh, it would be the wrong thing to do. And so you can conclude, no, this is actually not our story. I want to say, but yes, it is our story as well, although not directly. It's our story through Jesus. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of Jesus and grafted into the grapevine of God's people. And now through Jesus, we can call the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, we can call him our father. And we can call Jesus our brother as well as our Lord and Saviour. Um, when we think about what this psalm means for us, we'll have to look at it through Jesus. Uh, that means some things will be just the same for us and some things will be very different. Well, let's get into the lyrics. Um, the, um, we're going to start with the bad news, uh, which covers verses 1 to 4. Uh, now, without the superscription, you could be quite lost But it's already clear by now that the context of the psalm is war. King David spent a lot of his monarchy waging war and establishing his rule over a really large area of land. The psalm laments something catastrophic that's happened, a particularly significant defeat. David's conclusion is is that God is responsible for what is going on. He is the one that has rejected his people. He is the one that has burst upon them like a wall bursting in a siege. Um, or um, like a water tank bursting or something. And he's shaken the land and torn it open. Now, I've never been in a proper proper earthquake. I've never experienced a proper earthquake, and I don't ever hope to. But I grew up in Papua New Guinea, and earth tremors were quite common. Um, And it's the most unsettling feeling when the ground suddenly starts moving under your feet. And it's not because you're moving. The ground is moving. Everything that was solid and reliable and stable has become fluid and untrustworthy. Um, Now, God is supposed to be on Israel's side, and yet they've suffered. What's going on? Like, that's how they feel. You know, what's going on? God has shown the people desperate times. Um, it's as if he's even spiked their drinks. He's given them wine that makes them stagger. You know, that's pretty uh, terrible. They've been made useless by the wine that God has given them. Um, now, the interesting thing that each time the psalmist accuses God, he also then turns to God to plead for a restoration of his favour. And you can see that in the second part of both verse 1 and verse 2. You've, you have been angry, now restore us, or mend its fractures, for it is quaking. So he turns to God. Um, and in the same way, I think verse 4 responds to verse 3's accusations. All the commentators agree that the second half of verse 4 is difficult to translate because some of the words have more than one possible meaning. But I think what we have in the NIV and the NRSV is good enough. Um, whatever it is that God is doing by raising a banner is uh, for those who fear him. So I think it's reasonable that it's something positive. The thing that really puzzled me, though, was how does a raising a banner help against bows and arrows? You know, wouldn't they just go through? Um, anyway, I discovered that banners weren't actually always used for leading people into battle, um, but sometimes they could signal a retreat. And um, particularly if you lived near a fortified city, 
uh, it would be a signal to retreat to, into the fortified city so that you wouldn't uh, be attacked. Um, there's one example in Jeremiah chapter 4 where a banner is raised to signal to the people outside in the fields. Uh, raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. Uh, so verse 4 is not so much a plea as a reminder that God has blessed his people in hard times before. And it's kind of a reminder that's almost addressed as much to God as it is to the people. In this bad situation, the psalmist recalls to God his power to save those who fear him. So I guess my question to you is how do you handle rejection, especially when you feel like God has rejected you? Um, Do you retreat and say nothing, perhaps an angry sulk? Um, Or do you kind of feel shattered and depressed? Um, I think I tend to alternate between the two, you know, by the half hour anyway. Um, I think, um, or perhaps you abandon God and you go looking for other sources of meaning and comfort. And I think we've probably all seen people uh, respond that way. The psalmist has taken God's rejection right back to God. He's confident that God can handle the issues he has with him and is straightforward about asking God to change what is happening. He says, restore us. He says, mend its fractures. Having this sort of confidence in God is incredibly freeing and comforting, I think. um, He's not denying that it's bad. In fact, he's telling God it's bad. But then he's turning to God for help. He can bring anything to God. He's free to raise any issue. And he can turn to God for comfort, whatever the situation. But this freedom uh, could potentially be dangerous too. Um, If the psalmist forgets his place as a creature and usurps God's position, um, then it could be bad. Um, There's a couple of examples in the Old Testament when Jonah questions God's mercy on the Ninevites or when Job calls God his accuser. God puts them back in their place, uh, quite definitely. Anyway, let's move on to the good news, which is uh, in verses 5 to 8. Israel's relationship with God didn't just consist of their fear of God, It was more than a one-sided relationship. Verse 5 appeals to God because of his love for the Israelites and pleads for their deliverance. Save us and help us with your right hand, which is a really concrete way of speaking about God's power to shape the world, um, that those who love you may be delivered. What sort of reply uh, would you expect God to give such a heartfelt plea? Perhaps some reassurance of his love and King David's ultimate victory? maybe an explanation of why he's allowed the defeat to take place. Um, Would you expect a geography lesson? Um, Well, let's go with the geography lesson for the time being because, after all, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So I'm going to add a few bits and pieces to the map from verses 6 to 8. So the parts... He talks about um, Moab. No, actually... Uh, Manasseh is here. And here. So it's really big. And then, uh, that's wrong again. And we've got Ephraim. We've got Judah. And um, we've got Gilead. 
we've got Maya. So, um, oh, and Shechem is here, roughly, and the valley of Sukkot is there. So, just by sketching out a few names, um, he covers the whole land of Israel, virtually. Um, the big tribes were Judah and Ephraim, and uh, so they became so identified with the part of Israel they were in that Ephraim became a, a euphemism for the north of Israel and Judah the south. Um, Manasseh obviously covers a huge area, and so does Gilead. And um, it's both sides of the Jordan. There's uh, Shechem and there's the Valley of Succoth. Um, Shechem is a really significant city in the Old Testament. You know, it's uh, where Israel basically um, began its life in the, in the Promised Land. Um, so, I guess this is not really about a geography lesson, though. Um, it actually looks back to the promises that God's made to Abraham and the patriarchs about giving a land to his people. The promises that he spelled out in a lot more detail to Joshua in chapter 13, 14, 15, and so on. Um, the promises that he made again to David uh, as when he was a king in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to provide a place for my people Israel and to plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. So David doesn't have to find hope in a new revelation from God. Uh, he goes back to the promises that God has already made. Um, he remembers God's word in scripture and finds good news in it. There is hope for God's people, even though they have experienced a significant defeat. The land is God's and he is the one who passes it out, even though other countries have control of it from time to time. He's the ultimate ruler and his people Israel are part of his plans and he keeps his promises. Um, to assign Moab the place of a wash basin wasn't a comment on its water resources. Um, a wash basin was associated with the most menial task of foot washing. Uh, it was used to catch the filthy water that uh, the foot washing slave poured over the master's feet from a jar. Um, Edom is similarly a place where the dirty sandals are tossed. Even the sandals are higher than um, Edom. Yeah. Edom and Philistia are all, and Moab are all ancient enemies of the Israelites and will be subject to God and his people. So the question about is, that I want to ask you is how do you handle the gap between your expectations and your experience? David does it by turning back to remember what God has promised in the context of a significant defeat, which must have been really hard. His response to the mismatch between his expectations and his experience isn't to look for some new revelation. He goes back to God's word and there he finds this amazing promise of deliverance. The last four verses of the psalm is a plea for God's leadership and deliverance. Um, the difficult situation that King David finds himself in has driven him to the recognition that without God, he can't establish his rule over the land. Who will bring me to the fortified city, which is probably the capital of Edom? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, God, you who have now rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? I guess we don't really know why God allowed a significant defeat against Israel, uh, but it has certainly made it clear that without him they're lost. There's, there's no sense in this psalm that Israel or David needs to repent. Um, so 
it's so often the case um, when Israel has suffered defeat that it is clear they need to repent about something, but not in this psalm. Um, so it's a mystery, but they still turn to God. David's response is one of utter reliance on God. Human help is worthless. So often in later times, Israel actually turned away from God to other nations for their protection and consequently suffered. David's response is one of faith in action. Give us aid against the enemy for human help is worthless is a plea that demonstrates his faith in God's promises. Um, With God we will gain the victory and he will trample down our enemies. Um, This is outrageous, isn't it? How can David be so confident? Um, Isn't this what really irritates non-believers when um, people say things like this in the Bible? Um, Does it mean we can expect absolutely anything from God? Because I think that's the conclusion that some people draw. You know, God will give us the victory. Um, Well, of course not. God is very clear that he's in charge and uh, that he's our creator and we're his dearly loved creatures. And he gives us what's good for us. But it's, he's the one that is uh, doing that. We can be confident about what God has promised, um, not about anything. Um, David has remembered what God has promised and his confidence in a trustworthy God, is in a trustworthy God who keeps his promises. So it's not, his confidence isn't in uh, his ability to win the victory. His confidence is in God's Uh, promises. David points out that human help is worthless. He's relying on God to do this. So what can we take from this psalm? Uh, I think we need to go back and look at it through Jesus um, and uh, think again, how how can we handle divine abandonment when we feel rejected by God? Um, Some of the things that have stayed the same for our situation as compared to David who wrote the psalm We're still part of God's family through Jesus and his heavenly father is still the one who makes the promises that we can find in scripture. What's different is in our situation, it's no longer a war to establish an earthly kingdom. Um, Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual one and we're engaged in a spiritual war. Uh, But don't forget that we can take a look back to Jesus' victory on the cross and know that our involvement in this spiritual war is only a mopping up operation as it were. Jesus has won the victory and if we rely on him, uh, he has promised that we will never be separated from God. So even though you may feel abandoned, you can rely on that promise and uh, Romans 8 would be a great place to find a promise like that. How can we handle the gap between our experiences and our expectations? How can we rely on God? Well, David turned back to scripture to find God's promise and we still have those promises and more. And we're also assured that every promise that God has made is answered yes in Jesus. So uh, I guess Richard was right, although he didn't know at the time. Um, Psalm 60 does teach us that we really do need Jesus. (laughs) Anyway, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when we uh, face uh, those gaps between our experience and our expectations, when we um, feel abandoned by you, help us to turn to your word. Help us to find uh, in there your son Jesus and help us to find the promises that you have made. Help us to know you as someone who keeps his promises 
and uh, who will never abandon us. Amen.